When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, Dr. Z, welcome to the Z-Dog MD Show. Today I have Rachel Zoffness. She is a PhD pain psychologist, assistant clinical professor at UCSF in the Department of Pediatrics, but really she's all about managing pain in a way that isn't the typical way in this country we manage pain, which is here's a ton of opioids and bye-bye. It's a much more nuanced, inclusive, and holistic way of managing pain that I think is gonna help a lot of people. She's written a book called The Pain Management Workbook, which I basically read the entire thing in a morning and it is woke, it will help people. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Does anyone refer to you as Z? Everybody does, it seems, yeah. Me too, so I, get, I get that a lot too. Do you, so you, they call you Z? Yeah. So it's Z and Z? Yeah. Z and Z Music Factory? No. No, uh, I thought <laughs> you push it until it breaks, that's you. <laughs> Man, it's good. I, like we met for the first time this morning, basically, I know. and I feel like I've known you forever. I know. I think we're um, on the same wavelength with a lot of things. Something's happening there. Well, one of the things one of the things we're on a wavelength about is uh, pain. Yeah, I feel like ever since I was trained in the sort of standard reductionist Western model of pain management, and I started in the '90s when I was in training, mm -hmm. they would tell me things like, "Okay, pain is the sixth vital sign, or whatever. You need to measure it, and then." Uh, the best thing for pain is medication, uh, whether it's starting with Tylenol, NSAIDs, Neurontin, escalating to opioids, which they told me at that time with pharma's help, um, you can't get addicted if you really have pain because you know all the receptors absorb the opioid and there's totally. none left for the addiction magic to yeah, happen. And right. we know how that turned out. And then somehow we ignored the fact that pain, as you mentioned in your book, is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And what do you mean by that? Help walk us through what you mean by that, because I think that's the heart of what your teaching is trying to show us. Yeah. Um, so I'm a nerd, capital N. <laughs> I like big words, uh, but I also like breaking down big words. And I think everyone deserves to understand pain. Um, nothing pisses me off more than the fact that pain is this ubiquitous human experience that we all have, and none of us ever learn about it. So the first question I ask my patients who come to my office who've had pain for like years, by the way, I should say, the department I'm currently in is peds, but I treat patients of all ages. Got it. So I have patients who come to my office who have been in pain for like a decade or more, and I've had chronic pain pretty much my whole life too. I think mm. a lot of us have had pain. And I always ask them, so, um, has anyone ever explained pain to you? Do you wanna know how many people have said, yes, pain has been explained to me? Oh, I'm gonna bet a small number because I don't know how to explain pain. Yeah, the answer is zero. Oh, wow. Yeah, zero. Yeah. So, um, so it occurs to me that both doctors and patients alike deserve to understand pain and to be able to explain it. So biopsychosocial, back to the thing you asked, actually asked me. The big nerd word. The big nerd word just is a three component word. So if you imagine like a Venn diagram, you've got like the biomedical bubble at the top. So there's all these biomedical components to pain, like genetics and tissue damage and system dysfunction. We all know about that bubble. It's the one we teach and talk about the most. Then we've got the psychological bubble, which has all the stigma. Because when you're talking about pain, why would you talk about psychology? 
psychology is a bad word. We'll probably get to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm so, already triggered, Rachel. <laughs> don't <Yeah>. be triggered. <laughs> what can I do to soothe you? <laughs> In the psychology domain, we have emotions and thoughts and past pain memories, like that time you were held down when you got your first injection. Those are stored in your hippocampus and your behaviors are coping behaviors. And everyone has different behaviors when it comes to pain management, which we all know, like some people stay home for many years and some people take medication and some people get 42 surgeries and some people stop going outside and seeing their friends. There's a whole host of coping behaviors that actually impact the pain you feel. And then there's a the social or the sociological bubble. Am I, am I still okay? Can I keep going? Or so, 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 I, I, there's so much information. I, I'm still, so what's amazing <laughs> is, okay, we talked about the bio stuff. Yeah, like you said, we all learned that. Yeah. In the psychological stuff, you yeah. said a few things that had yeah. me go, <gasps> because because listen, this idea of when you, when, when you were held down and got a bunch of injections when you were a kid, yeah. that incorporates into your psychological DNA yep. and it can manifest as fear of needles as an adult. It can 100%. manifest as anti-vaccine sentiment because you're gonna cherry pick any information that supports your unconscious belief that these needles are terrifying. Totally. And I, it makes me think of my own uh, experience with, I get white coat hypertension. Mm. So my blood pressure at home is like 110 over 70. It's mm -hmm. perfect. Mm -hmm. The minute a doctor or a nurse or any outside person measures it, it's like 140. The and the what I realized, I had this memory that I still carry around of, my parents are both doctors. They took me for a pediatrician visit and it took four oh. people to hold me down oh. to get like the injections. But then they were, they had a, um, I love how this has suddenly become like therapy for me. You're a psychologist. Yeah. I'm going to use you. All right. I'm yeah, gonna, do with, it. With no payment. I'm all about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I remember the nurse putting, strapping on this really tight blood pressure cuff, and it just squeezing and squeezing, and me screaming and trying to get up and I'm my, having a visceral response right? to this. By the way, right? That's trauma. It's trauma. So now, when someone puts a cuff on me that isn't me, my blood pressure goes through the roof. I mean, I feel it, it right now. So oh. how can we? Do you want to do some belly breathing? <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get into that. I love it. I, I no, it's it, meditation is part of my life now. But but understanding these past and it seems like a minimal trauma. Like oh man, people were abused sexually, physically, and here I am complaining about this. No, tra there's all kinds of trauma, and they live in your body, right? I, You've read the body keeps the score, it's, probably it, exactly right. Yeah. And there's a, one of my good friends and another pain psychologist researcher, Melanie Noel, actually researches the storage of early pain memories in the hippocampus. Oh, wow. So they're actually really digging into this. This is a real thing. So right. if you get held down as a child, those are your associations with needles and pain. And what research shows is that that then amplifies future pain. So the psychological bubble contains memories of past pain experiences, and those will amplify pain experiences later in life. So if you're an adult with chronic pain, chances are very high. You may have had a traumatic experience at some point in your youth. There's the there's the ACEs studies, which you mentioned earlier, which show that adverse childhood experiences, including trauma, amplify and make more likely the development of chronic pain later in life. Okay, so real thing. this all makes perfect sense because the mind and the body are not two. Oh, isn't that weird? Isn't that the that brain strange? is connected to the body 100% of the time. 100% of the time. What? That's so weird. Yeah, you said that in the book. Yeah. You just say, a hundred percent of the time, it's right. it's a body mind. It's not. It's not. Right. They're not two things. And in Western medicine, we have this really fascinating problem, which drives me nuts. Which is um, either you have physical pain <laughs> right. and you see a physician, 
Or you have emotional pain and you go to someone like me. But guess what? That's not how pain works ever, ever. 100% of the sensory signals from the body filter through a part of your brain called the limbic system. The limbic system is your brain's emotion center. So 100% of the time, brain is brain. Pain, which rhymes with brain. Very Pain is words. both physical and emotional, always, because it's filtering through your limbic system, which is your emotion center. So we separate them out. Like you have physical pain, you go to the physician. You have emotional pain, you go to the psychologist. But when you're living with chronic pain, it's always both. If you're not taking care of your emotional health, believe it or not, you're actually not taking care of your pain. And and people don't respect or understand this because we're a reductionist materialist society that believes that the that everything has a physical biomedical reason for it. And in fact, I think that drives a lot of, you mentioned it in your book too, it drives a lot of the over treatment and over diagnosis and over for chronic pain. Like, oh, well, let's scan every part of your body. Let's, oh no, but I, but this can't be right. There must be something wrong with my neck because I have neck pain. What are you telling me the MRI is negative? Well, then I want a surgery. I right. want something. That's right. And, and what we're not addressing is, remember that time when you were a kid, plus there is a physical thing. So some, you got an injury. Plus, you know, you're on a medication that actually has made your pain sensitivity worse, which we can talk about. So so I'm, so I'm I derailed you, but I think it went biopsychological, so exterior individual to interior individual. Yeah. And then what's the third component? The third is social or sociological, and that's what I like to call absolutely everything else. So your social context, your relationships, your family, culture and religion and environment around you, um, access to good care and quality nutrition, um, whether or not you have access to doctors. And um, so it's literally everything else. So why would that affect your pain? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, when I went down this rabbit hole with pain, I was like, why is there a social or sociological bubble? How does that have anything to do with pain? So um, I have a few uh, responses to that question. Number one. What is the worst punishment you can give a human being? I get a variety of answers to this question. I kind of want to know what you, what you say. I, I I would say that the common answer, yes. which I disagree with, is uh, is isolation. Yes. Yeah. You disagree. I, I want to know everything about. Yeah. Um. So, if you fuck up, excuse my f bomb, everybody. Um, <laughs> it's not just that you go to prison, right? But if you fuck up in prison, you get thrown in the hole. You yeah. get thrown in salt. What does it say about human beings that the worst thing you can do to us isn't prison, it's isolation. Yeah. You get cut off from contact with your peers. Yeah. What does that say about human beings? So what research shows is in the presence of others, neurochemicals that live in your brain that confer feelings of pleasure and reward and happiness like serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin go sky high. In the absence of others, those neurochemicals plummet. People literally go insane in solitary confinement. You get depressed, you get anxious, you start hallucinating. Um, you're not physiologically okay. So one of the worst punishments you can give a human being is solitary confinement. Thing two, they did a whole bunch of research on uh, the elderly who were living in um, nursing homes. They found some really interesting things. Um, those who were uh, alone and isolated and lonely were getting sicker more often and dying more frequently than those who lived in community for a variety of reasons. And I'm fascinated by these because it ties together the social with the biological. Ready? When you are lonely and isolated and alone, a lovely, lovely hormone called cortisol spikes in your bloodstream. Guess what cortisol does to your immune system? Oh, it tanks it. 
it tanks it. And it also releases a whole host of other chemicals in your body that physically make you feel worse. So in the presence of others, amazingly, brain chemistry changes, conferring feelings of pleasure and reward and also health. And in the absence of others, you are more likely to get sick if you're healthy, get sicker if you're already sick, and die because your immune system is uh, compromised. So that's just the social component of the sociological bubble. And then you have like, well, access to care and access to nutritious food. And of course, the that built affects your health, right. right? And if you're living in a very stressful, impoverished environment, of course, that affects your health and your body. So there's like a ton, a ton of things. Um, I also have a fun tale of two nails story that I can tell you that will very quickly and handily explain how environment affects pain if you would like me to, or we can save that for later. You know what? Uh, I want to hear it, but I want to I want to counter with one thing because remember I said I disagreed about it. I know, I want to hear. Yeah. Now, so this is what I think. I think humans are evolved to be social creatures and yes. now what we've done during the pandemic with lockdowns and closing schools has been incredibly damaging to our social nature. Zoom is not a substitute for in-person. No. Like you sitting in front of me yep. is this, um, <clears throat> We create this kind of dyadic thing yeah. that you don't, you cannot, it's ineffable. It, language doesn't point at it, right. but it's real. If you were on Zoom right now, the conversation would be 70% less whatever this is. Try doing chronic pain therapy over Zoom. Exactly. So it doesn't work. Now, the reason I disagree with isolation being the worst thing you can do to humans is that, um, it, I think it is for yeah. most humans. We need to learn how to be with ourselves and meditation can help you with this, but this idea that being alone with our actual self should not be unpleasant. And yet we as a society have ingrained that it is unpleasant because we're stuck in our head, which we're gonna talk about those little voices, the constant radio station playing, and we identify with it. And when it's alone and separate from everything else that is, it's a source of deep suffering for us. But when we realize we're not separate, that we are all one kind of thing, you can be alone with this sense of being without suffering. Yes, ma'am. I'm so glad you called on me. Um, <laughs> I have, a, I have a thought about that. I think there's a different, and I, by the way, I think you're 100% right that we have a fear of aloneness. Um, and sometimes that's born of self, self-loathing and not liking ourselves very much. And mm. then we are scared of just being with ourselves because we have to listen to our own thoughts. And, mm. um, but I humbly submit that that's different than forced solitary ah. confinement for long enduring periods Fair of enough. time. Yes, absolutely. Those are different. Absolutely. And I do think that we are scared of being alone with ourselves and our thoughts and people don't know what to do and we're clingy and needy and that, scared of ourselves and I agree. So basically you made the distinction that then allows us both to 100% agree on all of that. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. Good, huh? yeah. yeah, you're okay. pretty woke. Yeah. I'm a little concerned uh, don't be that you're not gonna survive well in this society. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm just saying. I hope that's on a prescription. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a doom bait kind of guy like these guys on Twitter and the and the pandemic, but I think you're doomed. I really do. No, so thanks. So no, but thanks. What, so tell me this tale of two. Was it tale, tale of, two of two nails? nails. Yeah. yeah, I like it because it rhymes. I like it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brain and pain. Tale I know there's of two lots nails. of rhymes today. Yeah. Okay, so the purpose of this story is multifold. Um, right. So again, I just I'm going to say this blanket statement that every human being I've ever met has experienced pain at some point mm. um, and that there's a hundred million Americans currently who are living with chronic pain and probably even more than that during the pandemic. A hundred million, so a third. Yes, that's yeah. a true story. And, and I actually think that's an underestimate. I, 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 I'm with you. Yeah. And, and do, you think, do you think pandemic has made it worse? Oh, 
100%. And there's a lot of research that bears that up. Got it. For a million reasons, like people are cut off from their treatment teams and their support systems and their normal coping strategies and are turning to really unhealthy coping strategies. Like, you know, like the spike in alcohol sales and drug over. I think drug overdoses have increased by a third yeah, since. It's been yeah, I mean, it's like a shit show. Double plus on good. Though whatever progress there was in opioid crisis seems oh, it's to gone. have reversed. Yeah, yeah I, th I think... I think drug overdoses have increased by 30%, and I think 70% of those are opioid-related deaths. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I like your use of the slide. term uh, shit show. I Thank think it's you. very powerful. Thank I use you. it often. Yeah. 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 I think I got off track a little bit. Yeah. So the two that nails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not one nail, but two. But no, but this is important. Not I, one nail, but two. Yeah. Right. So, um, right. Again, we have all experienced pain. We all suffer from the same pain education problem, which means that none of us have ever been taught about pain. So as one of those people, I also thought that pain lived exclusively in the body. Mm -hmm. we, we usually do, right? If you have back pain, you think that your pain lives exclusively in your back and you have to go to a million specialists to target your back mm -hmm. because that's the problem. Um, and it turns out that that's not actually accurate. And one of the reasons we know that pain does not live exclusively in the body, but is actually constructed by the brain, of course, in conjunction with the body, is because of a condition known as phantom limb pain, which you knew I was gonna say. Because yeah. I read obsessed. your book, yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed with phantom limb pain. Yeah. Phantom limb pain is a condition in which, like an accident survivor or trauma victim, loses a limb, like an arm or a leg, and they continue to feel terrible pain in the missing body part. And if pain lived exclusively in the body, no limb should mean no pain. So the conclusion we have drawn, and thank God for neuroscience, the conclusion neuroscience has drawn is that pain is constructed by the brain, of course, with contributions from the body. Because again, like you said, this brain-body divide just ain't a thing. Ain't a thing. Right. So Ron Melzack and Patrick Wall are sort of the founding fathers of pain science as we understand it today. And they sort of elaborated on this phantom limb thing. So I don't want to pretend that I'm like the creator of this. But the tale of two nails, here's how this goes. Um, this is from two stories from um, from really nerdy science journals that I happen to really love, and I think they outline this phenomenon So you're really talking well. about like book three of the Harry Potter series <laughs> or something, right? This is like Tales of Beatles the Bard? Yes. Okay, perfect, good. Because yeah. now I'm like, <laughs> tell me more. Are there wands? Uh, yeah, are there wands? Are they dragon heartstring wands? Exactly. <laughs> You know, I, I thought that our, our wands both came from the same dragon part. I could tell. Griffin yes. tail. Phoenix tail? I'm a... Griffin. Yeah. Phoenix. Griffin. Gryffindor? I'm getting my magical Hufflepuff? creatures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I actually was sorted into Hufflepuff because I said I liked animals. You strike me as a Hufflepuff. I'm not sure that's a compliment. I really <laughs> want to be a Gryffindor. <laughs> I have friends who want to be Slytherin and I'm no, like... Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. me more about that. <laughs> See, I, I was the one with the sorting hat was like, you're totally Slytherin, bro. I don't know what you want to be, but you know, yeah. All right, we could talk about that later. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> okay, God, it's very hard to sound. It's difficult. But that's that's a sign but of But that's the joy, that's the joy of it, yeah. Agree, so two construction workers. Yeah. Uh, one gentleman, I believe he was 26, and this was in the early 90s. He jumped off a platform, this is on a construction site, straight onto a seven inch nail. Oh. And it went th straight through his boot, clear through to the other side. And there's a picture where you can see this huge nail Ugh. penetrating through the top of his boot. He was in terrible pain. His colleagues rushed him to the ER. He was sedated, of course, with intravenous opioids. Uh, and the good doctors removed his boot and discovered that a miracle had occurred. The nail had passed between the space between his toes. There was no blood. There was no tissue damage. 
There was no injury, but the man was in terrible pain. Oh, wow. Right. How is that possible? His brain, which we call your danger detector, used all available information to determine whether or not his body was in danger and how much, because that's actually what pain is. Pain is your body's danger detection system. So if your brain believes your body's in danger, it will make pain to protect you. But like every system in the human body, the pain system can fail. So the brain used all available information, like the visual of the nail sticking through his boot and memories of past pain experiences and knowledge of the dangerous work environment, again, environment in the social or sociological bubble, and the, even the expression of his coworkers' faces because he had a seven-inch nail sticking to the top of his shoe, and it created pain to protect him. Wow. I know. It's amazing. That's amazing. I know, but that's only story one. Oh, no. Do you want story two? Uh, yes. Okay. Construction worker, most dangerous job there is, mm -hmm. apparently, was on a different construction site. I don't remember what year this paper was. So I think also in the 90s, um, he was using a nail gun, mm. and the nail gun misfired. But he saw the nail shoot across the room, bury in the wall, but it, it backfired. So it ricocheted backwards, clocked him in the jaw. So he went home. He had a terrible headache and a jaw ache, toothache for like six days. And he said to his wife after six days, I think he had like a bruise on his jaw thing, backfired. He said to his wife, I'm going to go get this toothache checked out. He went to the dentist. The dentist did a scan of his jaw and his face. And much to both men's surprise, they discovered a four-inch nail embedded in his face. Aye, aye, protruding aye. into his cortex. Yeah. Oh, my. Right. So real damage, real danger, but very little pain. How is that possible? His brain, a.k.a. your danger detector, used all available information, and it saw that nail bury in the wall, and it determined that there was very little danger to his body. So produced very little pain. So yes, the pain system can fail and always fails, but we always make the mistake of believing that our pain lives exclusively in our body and that we need to go fix that and surgically remove things and cut things up and take pills and blah, 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 blah. But but what we know is that that doesn't actually work for chronic pain. And, and many people living with chronic pain can tell you that however many procedures later and however many pills later, their pain isn't fixed because we're not focusing on the biopsychosocial problem. We're focusing exclusively on the biomedical bubble at the top, right? We've got biomedical, we've got psychological, we've got social, sociological, and we're focusing on one third of the pain problem, which actually means we're missing two thirds of the pain problem. Yeah. So basically what I'm gleaning from this yeah. is that this idea that we were taught that pain is a unequivocal warning signal that something is broken, wrong, or dangerous is not necessarily true. It is no. your brain's interpretation Correct. of a threat to the body or lack thereof. That's right. And therefore, that interpretation can be dysfunctional based on biologic conditions, psychologic conditions, trauma, et cetera, yes. belief structures, et cetera, and sociological and social conditions and all of them need to be addressed if you're going to have any hope of unwinding chronic pain that was perfectly said no formal training no Bra bravo i really want to can i clap yes I, in fact i deserve it i earn it i'm such a great person no but the, the truth is because as i was reading your book this morning on a stairmaster i was noting my chronic neck pain mm. which has gotten worse and worse but I don't, and everything you talked about in the book, I started applying mm. in real time and realizing, wow, this is a psychologically, when I worry that I have a physical process going on, that I'm slipping a disc or pinching a nerve, 
boy, does the anxiety ratchet up, in which case the pain ratchets up, in which case, and I know it's biopsychosocial because there is, I have tech neck from staring at this, I sleep funny on the thing, but at the same time, when I worry about the pain, it gets worse and then it becomes a headache. And then I have trouble interacting with people because I'm in pain. And then I think, then I start falling into the I'm screwed. Cognitive distortions that happen. That's right. Overgeneralizing. Well, now that I'm having pain, I'm going to have pain forever. Oh, Black and white it. thinking. Man, if I, you, you know, if I, it. I, it's just every single one. And then, and then, because I actually, a combination of reading about it and meditating and all that, I go, oh, this is what I'm doing. How interesting. And watch, pay attention to the pain, be with the pain. Next thing you know, it's much more tolerable, if not gone. And magic, but not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what So what you said about <laughs> these stories, anyone who says, oh, well, pain's all in your head, well, they're, they're missing the biological part of it. Anyone who says, well, no, pain is a pure physical process is wrong. So the only people who are right are people who see the entire holistic picture. Or integrating it. Right. Yeah, the whole thing where like, I get all these patients who are like, why am I being sent to a psychologist? I have a physical problem. The one I love is, no, but my pain is organic. And I'm like, yeah, yep, that's right. All pain is real, all pain is organic, and all pain is biopsychosocial. All the things are true all the time. And it's not all in your head. Like there are some physicians who do say to their patients and give them this message like, right. well, we can't find anything on the scans. So mm. it's psychological. Yeah, Your pain is psychological and there's something wrong with you. You're Maybe you're mentally ill and we have to send you to a therapist. And that makes my job a million times oh. harder because I am treating what we're calling physical pain, which of course I'm submitting to everybody is both physical and emotional all the time. But I treat physical conditions. I treat people with chronic illness and chronic pain and chronic health. That's what I do. But it makes my job so much harder when someone says to the patient, yeah, it's just all in your head and we can't find anything on the scans and therefore it's just anxiety or like, or you're just depressed. And yes, anxiety and depression feed pain. That's what neuroscience shows, that pain is amplified when we are anxious and depressed. That's just a neurological process. It's a real thing. And we can talk about the mechanism behind that too if you want. Just straight up neuroscience, the gate control theory of pain, back from 65. This, this has been shown that, that that is true. But that's not the only cause of your pain. And it does not mean that you're mentally ill. The other thing that makes me crazy is like, if you've been in pain for a decade, you bet your ass you're depressed and anxious. Pain is miserable. It takes away your life, your your hobbies, your ability to have sex with your partner, your ability to engage in work and play. Like if you're not depressed and anxious when you've had pain for a decade and it's interfering with your life, I'm worried about you. But we call that situational depression and situational anxiety. And when we treat your pain, that miracle of miracles. Yeah, your anxiety and depression. It's not like your brain is chemically broken. Let's throw you on some drugs because you're mentally ill and we just need to fix your anxiety and depression. It like makes me crazy. It should make you crazy. Yeah. It makes me crazy and angry. It's part yeah. of the reason I do my show is yeah. I got so disgusted in the practice, the daily practice of hospital medicine, yeah. seeing what we've done to people. Yeah. And be, and it's it's with good intent. It's not like these are bad exactly people trying right. to- That's exactly right. It's not malicious. But I mean, putting a kid with with- you know, some issues on like Thorazine or something, or like, you know, the kind of things we do to kids yeah. and we've reduced them all yeah. to one quadrant of experience, That's which right. is the the organism exterior that we can measure and probe and 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 surgerize and intervene on yeah. and opiatize, if that's a word. And and now. <laughs> exactly. But we don't, we don't it, we just look at the whole thing. It's this 
this undulating wave of reality. And this is the thing, like you said, when anybody reduces a person to one of those quadrants, when they say, okay, you're je- okay, it's all physical, I'm a spine surgeon, mm-hmm. I get paid to say that. Yeah. I can cut open your back and I will cure you. Yeah. And then it doesn't work, so they go, you know what? You're kind of crazy. Yeah. You probably just have mental illness. I'm gonna send you to a psychiatrist and they can surgically in you and uh, right. put you on antipsychotics because that's the problem. Right. And what does that do to the mind state of the person hearing it? It, it ruins it. Totally. Yeah. And in the in the book, what I like about your book is you actually give strategies for, yeah. okay, well, so you can talk about this all day. Well, it's terrible that we do this to people and I we know. reduce it. Well, so what do we do then? Well, yeah. here are at the minimum, five different things on a list of things that you can start to do. Here are tools, there's cognitive behavioral stuff, mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's simply reframing and listening to your mind and going, hey, remember that? Tell tell me about the pain voice. This this blew my mind. Yeah, right. Um, So I like talking about the voice in your head and I just need to be careful not to suggest that, you know, it's like people hear the voice in your head. A psychotic voice, no. I'm schizophrenic, No, no, not that. You know, you have your conscience, you're the, you know, and you hear the things in your head all day long. So um, it is normal and natural to have a very loud inner critic. Most of us do. And when we have chronic pain, it's very common to hear what I have named pain voice. Mm. And pain voice is exactly what you think it is. It's just this um, jerk. I almost mm. used more curse words, but I think I'm just going to try He's and an calm that down a yeah. little bit. You can use the words for me. Yeah. All right. 100%. And I'll be he, your anger translator. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he just predicts bad things all day long. Like you're never going to get better. Mm-hmm. Nothing's worked so far, so nothing's going to work. It's just going to get worse from here. This is going to ruin your job, your sex life, your career, whatever, whatever. Right? Um, that's what he does. That's his job. And he really, really wants you to be in pain because if you're not in pain anymore, he's his done. His identity's gone. He's done. He's finished. He's done. So okay, I'll interrupt for a second, please. I get so many messages from people with chronic pain who are suffering. And these messages are all written in pain voice. They're written in pain voice. I'm never getting better. Doctors don't understand me. This has ruined my life. You please help me. You're the only person who seems to understand. And I'm like, I'm not a pain doctor. I'm not your doctor, but I do understand what you're going through. Totally. And and so that pain voice actually manifests sometimes in writing, you can hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is constantly Uh this chatter in the Uh head of people with certain people with chronic pain. Yes, and just to normalize, um, we all have some version of yeah, a pain voice, we, yeah. everybody all the time, um, to varying degrees, depending on what's going on with your body and your brain. So so everyone's got it, it's just how loud it is, and the way I like to talk about pain voice is, because we all also have the opposite or the counter, which I, I'm, I've called our wise voice, right? Yeah. And wise voice is like- By the just, way, I'm a, little, I'm a little pissed because you made wise, wise voice a chick. Yeah, 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 Anna, both of mine was, are female. Oh. Yours can be male or, you know, whatever Cis, sex you Can want. they be gender non-binary? A hundred percent. Some of my patients have like animals. Really? Or like emojis. So do I have to start listing pronouns for my pain voice and my wise voice? <laughs> Only if you want to. Okay, good. Yes, yeah, so right. you get to choose, you're Freedom. the chooser. All right, you're good, the decider good. about so, your pain voice. <laughs> so back back to your wise voice. Yeah, so yeah. if you imagine, so there's a, there's a technique in psychology called externalizing, which I find to be very, very powerful with pain. What happens to all of us is you hear the voice inside your head and it sounds like you, so you believe it. And we all believe the bullshit in our heads all the time. It's a real problem we all have. And I have a neighbor who has a bumper sticker and it says, don't believe everything you think, uh, which I think is brilliant, brilliant and so hard to do. Right. So when you externalize, you take this voice and you give it a name. 
Um, my pain voice is Mrs. Beasley. She sounds like obnoxious school principal. Mrs. Beasley. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Mrs. Beasley exactly. says you're going to suffer until you die. Yeah. You yeah. got it. Yeah. And she's like has these knitted thick eyebrows and like lumpy black clothes. And so when I hear her, and of course I created this for some of my patients because if you, it's better to have an example. But now when I hear pain voice in my head, I'm like, that's just Mrs. Beasley and she's a jerk. And oh. I know what she sounds like. And I have a list of all the things she commonly says. And sometimes there's variations, but it's usually fairly standard. She's predicting the future, which by the way, I would love to be able to do. But if I could do that, I'd also be a bazillionaire and we would like buy Fiji and like, you know, it'd be great. Uh, but I know I don't have that superpower. So that's one of my tells. That's one of my clues. I know it's Mrs. Beasley, the pain voice, because she's predicting bad shit about the future right. or she's catastrophizing. Yep. Horrible things are going to happen. It's going to be... That's Mrs. Beasley. So I have a list of things and that's my pain voice. And so, like you said, once you become clear on what she sounds like or he or it uh, sounds they. like, they, like they. Yeah. sound like, then you you become more aware that it's not you. It's not you. It's just pain voice. And, and pain voice doesn't want to be put out of work. Uh. Pain voice doesn't want to be unemployed. So pain voice is going to try very hard to convince you that she's real and she's right. And so our job then is to recognize, we call it catch it, check it, change it. So you catch her, then you check her, you test it to see whether or not it's true, and then you do something to change it. I, I'm not pretending that it's magic, I'm not pretending that it's easy, but it's definitely doable. So that is the heart of cognitive behavioral Correct. therapy yes. as applied to pain. And what what I've, so ah, this is so good because this whole idea of Descartes, I think, therefore I am, right. was a fundamental misapprehension of what we are. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not our thoughts, our thoughts appear in us. And if we identify with our thoughts, it's the cause inevitably of suffering, of contraction, of separation, of that inability to be alone voluntarily. Mm. And when pain voice is what you identify with, and you don't check it, so you don't recognize it. So that's a lack of app, of, app, of comprehension or, or mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes you, mm -hmm. which then means it becomes your behavior. Uh -huh. So all those cognitive distortions you mentioned, like the catastrophizing, oh my God. And by the way, all these same cognitive distortions happen in any news about the pandemic. Totally. Oh, the vaccines work, but not really because there are variants. And now it's <laughs> catastrophizing about the variants. So we, we apply these same things as a collective sometimes. Yes. But, but, and sometimes it can be protective, right? So maybe we're a little more cautious, but in the case of pain, chronic pain, pain voice is not helping you. That's correct. Pain voice is harming you. So That's how correct. do you, when you check, okay, you recognize it, you catch it. How do you check it when you believe it? Right. Yeah. So I just wanna say a quick thing about a thing that you, I have like wanna say 40 things, but I'm gonna try and just say one. Um, you said, about the collective anxiety and the catastrophizing, that sometimes its um, purpose is to protect you. And the reason we can't really hate pain voice is because that's its goal too. Yeah. It thinks it's protecting you. Right. Because pain, again, is the body's warning system. And we know that the system can fail. But ultimately, the reason humans survive is because we have a pain system. If you imagine, I used to think having no pain sounded so amazing. People born without the ability to feel pain die. Yeah. They do not survive. Yeah. So, because, right, because body is, pain is protective. If you break your leg on a run and you don't know it and you keep running, you are screwed. You throw up marrow embolism or something. Yeah, fat embolism. There's yeah. like a million examples yeah. of that, right? Like if you have food poisoning and you don't know that your and your stomach yeah. doesn't hurt, yeah. 
Yep. So so pain voice is intending to protect you, but it's not doing it well. It's not doing it yeah, correctly. That's right. So I just want to just, I think your point is exactly on target. And, and in your book, you actually reframe, say for example, anger as a thing. You reframe, you go, well, you can visualize anger as this fluffy dog that yeah. you just need to go take for a walk totally. and love instead of, so that reframing even of pain voice. Mrs. Yeah. Beasley's kind of, but she's there to help. She's like, she actually cares about you. She wants you to be well. It's just yeah. all she knows. Right, Right. that's exactly right. right. So you asked, once you recognize your pain voice, what do you do about it? Mm. Um, there's a fun activity called using detective questions. So I just wanna, can I back up for a quick Absolutely. second? Okay, so cognitive behavioral therapy is the strategy or the technique that I use when I treat pain and I have been doing it for a really long time and I happen to love it. I think it's really, really effective and there's a lot of research. It's not like this floofy thing. There's an abundance of literature out there on cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety and for depression and for family dysfunction and for sleep. And for pain, and guess what? When it comes to pain, all of those things are interconnected. Shocking. Mm. Yes. Um, so we could talk about the literature on CBT for forever, but I don't want to. Yeah, you no. could just read Feeling Good, you know, yeah. the book, you know, <laughs> right, I remember right. that one. And, 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 and Or read The Coddling of the American Mind by psychologist Jonathan Haidt. I have not read it, but now I will. So his whole premise is that CBT, which saved George, uh, George Lukanoff, who was his co-author, who's a lawyer, saved him from suicidal depression can be applied to our current way of how we catastrophize on social media, how we play the world as black and white, good and evil, how we wanna cancel people that disagree because we have distorted thinking that if I feel bad, if I'm hurt by somebody's statement, I'm physically hurt. Mm. This idea that hurt and harm are not the same, you right. mentioned in your book. Yep. So, so yeah, so sorry. So back to cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, I just yeah. wanna sort of give like a little bit of a, just to, so it's this evidence-based treatment for all of these different things, including pain. It sort of bridges the gap between medicine and psychology, which is why I like it so much. Mm -hmm. I always wanna live in that space. Um, and it teaches us that our thoughts and our feelings, both our emotions and our physical feelings or sensations and our behaviors, our daily, choices are connected 100% of the time. Mm. And there's like lots of diagrams and all sorts of things that sort of show you how they're connected. It's really intuitive once you see it, mm. um, but it sort of reminds us that the thoughts in our head are connected to the sensations in our body. And like you were saying before, the decisions you make every day, your behaviors are connected to your physical sensations and your pain. So all the things are intimately connected all the time. So in CBT, we do focus a lot on the C, which is the cognitive component of pain, which is pain voice and the things you tell yourself, like I'm never gonna get better and nothing's ever gonna help. And you know, I'm gonna die alone with terrible pain, which of course, as you imagine, amplifies depression and anxiety, which in turn amplifies pain. So what can you do? There's a ton of strategies. There's this one technique called using detective questions. So mm. again, the steps in CBT are catch it, so recognize Mrs. Beasley and pain voice, then check it, just test it out. Like I think about it as like, you know, in movies with pirates, they're always like biting down on gold coins to see if the gold is real. Arr, this is fake. Thank How you. do you know? I don't know, but yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if you bite down it. Is it supposed to be soft if it's gold or hard if it's gold? I can't remember. I don't know. It makes yeah. my fillings tingle when I bite down on a gold doubloon. So. <laughs> I personally have never bitten down on a gold doubloon. You know what? Then you haven't lived. You know what? Tell your tell your pirate voice. <laughs> That's the one so that just funny. goes, and repeats whatever, whatever anyone said. Like you just said, well, you know, the thing about CBT and I just hear, ah! CBT. That's my that's parrot. my pirate parrot voice. That's amazing. So sorry. So I wonder if anyone's pain voice is a 
pirate. You know what? It, then it's worth it. Like I'd be willing to have chronic pain if I could have a pirate <laughs> pain voice. Ye will never be better, you scurvy knave. <laughs> ye back pain is organic, whatever that means. And ye chronic limes shall never be cured. <laughs> I think we have a business venture in our future. <laughs> I wonder if that, I bet that would really help if you could um, humorize comedic, it. Humorize it, it yeah. Comedy. I bet that would actually do a lot. I think you're onto something. It's kind of like your dog, uh, the fluffy dog to right. represent anger. That's right. it, it disarms it a little bit. Yeah. Totally disarming is such yeah. a powerful technique. Agree 100%. Right. So the detective question trick is you, you're basically biting down as if on a gold coin. You just want to test the thoughts to see are they true? Or are they BS? Because mm -hmm. again, we believe the thoughts in our head. They sound real. They sound true to us. So we tend to believe them whether or not they're BS. Mm. So you want to test them, like biting down on that gold doubloon just to see, is it real or is it not real? Like, am I tossing it back or am I putting it in my pocket and keeping it? So there's a bunch of ways to test the thoughts. So these detective questions that you use. So say I'm thinking the thought, um, I'm broken, I'll never get better. Mm. That's a That's a... Great one. I hear that all. I'm broken. I'll never get better. So you ask a couple of questions, the detective questions, just to assess this might be a, this might be true. Maybe this is true. I should test it out and see. So uh, the list of questions, I think there's about 10 of them. One is, is this a fact? And a fact is like hardcore, 100% verifiable, cannot be, cannot be in any way uh, rendered untrue. So uh, I am broken, I'll never get better. I'm pretty sure if I asked you, is this a fact, you would probably say, what would you say? Is this a fact? So, yeah, of course it's a fact because Mrs. Beasley says, so. actually yeah. it doesn't. I guess it's not a fact. Right, a fact is like unquestionably, yeah. undeniably it's true. It's like the Big Lebowski. It's like your opinion, man. It's like your yeah. opinion, dude. Yeah, exactly. You have to say dude. If you have to say the, dude, if you're yeah. Doing the Big Lebowski, yeah. Totally. So there's a bunch of questions you ask those thoughts to test them out and see whether or not they're actually facts or fiction. So that's yes. the first detective question and that makes sense. Yes. What's another example of a detective question? Uh, what evidence do you have that this thought might not be true? Ah, so you're mm. playing devil's advocate with yourself. What evidence? I actually really love evidence because yeah. evidence sort of like the, the word fact, like mm -hmm. there's certain things like, I think we all have sort of our logical mind over here and we have our emotion mind over here. And there right. is a place where they overlap. Right. But emotion mind operates in how you're feeling, sort of like inside out, if you've seen yeah. inside out, right? It's a beautiful film. And anger yeah. is like this little red stumpy fire-headed guy. And he sees Lewis red Black. and he thinks red and he acts red, right? And that's emotion mind. And then you have logical mind, which is like two plus two is four and the sky is blue and there's no emotion there. So where they intersect is again, wise mind. We love wise mind. Um, but oftentimes when we are um, in pain voice, we're in our emotion mind, mm. right? Mm. So the detective questions are pure effing logic, just logic. Right. Is this a fact? Right. What evidence do I have that this isn't true? You're just sort of questioning your emotional thoughts and you're just saying, is there logic and science in these beliefs that I'm believing and I'm carrying them around like weighted satchels on my back and they're weighing me down and they're making my pain worse. Are they true? Do I need them? Can I release them? Do I need them? So what evidence do I have that this might not be true? Like um, I know a lot of people who have had pain who have tried a, a couple of different things and they actually have gotten better. Or in the past when I did X, Y, and Z, my pain got, it, it changed. You know, it's, it didn't magically disappear, but it changed. So if my pain can change, 
maybe there's hope that something in the future will, will change it. So, mm-hmm. so things like that. Mm. And, and, and the key thing in this is it takes a little bit of diligence because <gasps> that logical mind, so we use the analogy on this show, we use Jonathan Haidt's analogy of elephant and writer. So elephant is our big limbic emotional mind. And writer is the little person on top that evolved recently that has logic and reason and persuasion. And typically this is the slave to the elephant because right. the elephant's so much bigger and yep. more unconscious and That's reactive. Right. Right. Um, and we can grow our writer, we can grow the logical component, but it takes mindfulness to actually recognize what the elephant's doing. So listening to it, catching it, that's your first step. That's right. And then sort of testing it with the detective questions is where the writer goes, okay, elephant, you're taking me down a crazy path. Is this path where we really want to go? Is it true? Is this the path we need to be that's on? That's right. And then you're asking the questions. And then you can actually start to even, as, as a society, shape the path to help us walk more more carefully. That's a, another meta abstraction. Yeah, right. Yeah. The question I ask also is, is this thought helping me or is it hurting me? Uh, I'm broken, I'll never get better. That seems helpful. <laughs> Let's keep that one. Hey, you know, some people are into pain, you know? Well, that's a whole other animal. Right, right, right. You know? Not this, yeah. yeah. Th- that's great, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. D- again, when applied to depression, it's the same thing. The exactly. negative, th- man, I'm never worthy. The overgeneralization, man, I screwed this up, which means I'll always screw, screw this everything up. up. Yeah, I'll That's always right. screw everything up. And then you investigate that and go, okay, look at your past. Has this always been the case? Has, exactly right. Is this something that happens? That's right. Um, it's it, and it, Now, one of the criticisms that CBT gets sometimes from people who've tried it is, well, you have to be Spock to be able to outlogic some of these very strong emotions. How do you think about that? Yeah, um, I think there is this um, bad rap a little bit that CBT gets where, I hear people in the pain world say this too, like, oh, you want me to outthink my pain or think pain away? Mm. 100% no, totally not, no. Um, The cognitive stuff I find to be useful, I don't think it's the core of CBT. And what I like about CBT is, uh, that book is like 200 something pages. If you don't like a strategy, Mm. you don't have to use it. There's so many that you can use. And I actually find that with some of my, I actually think the cognitive piece is very important, but Mm. some people really hate it and that's okay. So let's focus on behavior change. Mm. There's so many things you can do to help your body by changing decisions you're making every day. So mm. there's so many behaviors that you can engage in. So CBT, just to your point, is not about like becoming some master of your mind. Like you have to become a monk and like wrangle all of your thoughts. Like literally what I'm asking you to do is think about your thoughts. Just think about them and then just challenge them every once in a while. Like, is this true? Is this a fact? If you can do that, I'm satisfied. So that's thing one. Thing two is like, okay, when people come to my office, I always ask, is what you're doing working? The answer is no, you wouldn't be in my office if what you're doing to manage your pain is working, right? Mm-hmm. So so what can we do differently to change your pain? That's my question. What can we do today that will change your pain that's different than what we did yesterday or the last year, or the, you know? So. CBT is sort of like an amalgamation of a lot of different things. Yes, we're working on your mind and your thoughts, but we're not asking you to think your pain away or become some sort of like master Buddha. That's not realistic. It's just not like yeah, so. it's really hard. Yeah, it's but really but hard. but you don't need to. You don't need to do That's that. Right. And and I think one one of the things I, that you mentioned is thinking about your thoughts. I I, I would even dig even deeper and say you're, what you're trying to do is even be aware without identifying with them. That's right. right. Like without losing yourself in in Mrs. Beasley, you go, wait, there's Mrs. Beasley. Right. Okay, now at least I see her. Mm -hmm. And I know she's trying to help, but I know she's probably wrong Mm -hmm. because she's often wrong. And it usually appears at a time when I'm suffering a bit. 
And you know, there was a Shinzen Yen, who's a, I think that's his name, Shinzen Young, a Zen teacher, has the saying that um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Right. And so do you think that this sensation of pain, it's an energetic sensation, is then overlaid with the voices of Mrs. Beasley, the pain voice and the other things that are happening that then generate actual suffering, which is a kind of an identification with the pain, the loss of hope in the future, the overgeneralization, all the cognitive distortions that arise and then losing yourself and identifying with those. And it may just be as simple as, you know, the cognitive stuff is important, but just recognizing, oh, look at this is how my mind works. And that takes a little practice and instruction, but then it can become quite automatic. Um, this saying that pain is optional and suffering is a choice is one I hear a lot. It's sort of ubiquitous in another uh, CBT offshoot called ACT, oh. which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, and I don't agree that ah, suffering is tell a me. choice. Yeah, tell me. Um, I actually think if you say to someone living with pain, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, F you. Yeah. Because, because I don't think suffering is a choice. I think suffering is part of human uh, experience. I think we can make choices that can amplify suffering and amplify pain. And I think we can make choices that reduce suffering and reduce pain, but I do not think that suffering is a choice. And I think saying that to people, this is not a critique of you, obviously, because you did not make up the saying. And I know that it's a very popular one and I hear it a lot. Um, I do think it's like very dismissive of people living with pain because you are suggesting that they aren't doing it right or that they're doing something that's that's choosing to suffer as much as they're suffering. Right, 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 right. Um, so I take umbrage, which is yes, another word that another I really enjoy. Del Dolores umbrage from- <laughs> Another Harry Potter so, reference so, by accident. Yeah, I think the intentionality of that statement is that you have tools yes. within your power when taught to reduce your suffering. Correct. And, you, and, you, and, this, and this I is, embrace that. Right, right, so I think we agree. The, the interesting thing about that suffering piece that you said is I actually think suffering is crucial, a degree of suffering is crucial to the human experience. It, it, I don't think it, wouldn't, it would exist if it wasn't. If we were all Buddhas and unable, have liberated ourselves from suffering because we don't cling to anything and we don't grasp, we don't identify with thoughts, we are just open, ever-present, this moment awareness, uh, not a very interesting life. Um, so we can strive towards some asymptote of that to make ourselves feel a little better and have yeah. a journey. But yeah. I think in the end, I in, I think our suffering makes us, first of all, it gives us compassion mm. for others. Like without absolutely feeling the worst you've ever felt, how will you be able to really understand another person's pain? It's very hard to do. So it's very nuanced and complicated. But I like I like what you said that it is dismissive a little bit of people with chronic pain who are, uh, you're saying, well, you're suffering, it's just optional, just turn it off. Right. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're suffering. Well, that's your problem. <laughs> you sure yeah. don't have yeah. the ability to bootstrap yourself <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, totally. Right, exactly. Yeah, and there is, I mean, I think, as you've been saying throughout, there is this relationship between anxiety and depression and pain all the time. Um, and there are tools that we can use to manage. So can I give you a metaphor that I like to teach all the time? Please. And it sort of ties together the relationship between all these things. And it sort of explains pain neuroscience, which I'm deeply obsessed with because neuroscience is rad. It's pretty rad. It's just rad. Yeah. So here's what we know about pain. Um, if this gets too nerdy. Oh, come on. You're talking about me. this show. Yeah, fair. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, 
I want you to imagine in your central nervous system that you have what I'm going to call a pain dial. So it's like the volume knob on your car stereo. You can turn it up and turn it down to change pain volume. Mine goes to 11. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. All right. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. um, and there is no one single pain center in your brain. It's, you know, with certain things, there's just like one center in your brain for that thing. But pain is what we call a diffuse neurological experience or diffuse neurological process. So there's lots of parts of your brain that process pain. And there's three in particular that I'm going to tell you about because they're relevant to this pain dial analogy that I want to give you. So one is your prefrontal cortex, responsible for executive functioning and attentional processes. So like what you're focusing on. Keep that in mind. That affects the pain you feel. The second is your cerebral cortex, the part of your brain, shockingly, responsible for thoughts. Back to the cognitive. Thoughts affect pain. And the third that I want to tell you about, even though they're like, you know, 25, is your limbic system. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, your limbic system is your brain's emotion center. So, again, what that tells us is that pain, this thing we call physical pain, is both physical and emotional 100% of the time. So here's how this works. Ready? There's a lot of things that can change pain volume. It's like my five-minute pitch. There's a lot of things that can change pain volume and change your uh, pain dial. So three things in particular. Stress and anxiety is one. Mood and emotions is two. And attention is three. Mm -hmm. Stress, anxiety, mood or emotions, and attention. Here's how this works. When stress and anxiety are high and your body is tense and tight, like say during a pandemic, and your thoughts are negative which often happens when we have pain, our brain sends a message to our pain dial, turning it way up. So whatever pain you had before, when you're stressed or anxious, your pain now feels worse. Mm. Thing two is mood. So when mood is low and you're miserable and depressed, or your emotions are negative, you're angry, you're frustrated, your limbic system sends a message to your pain dial, amplifying pain volume. Thing three is attention. So when you are home and in bed and missing work and isolated, like during a pandemic, your prefrontal cortex sends a message to your pain dial, turning it way up. Pain feels worse when you're focusing on it, which we all know is true. You're thinking about it, you're focusing on it, suddenly it feels worse, right? But the opposite is also true. So when stress and anxiety are low and your body is relaxed, your muscles are relaxed and your thoughts are calm, which is why meditation and mindfulness, as you have said, are so helpful for pain. Your brain sends a message to your pain dial, turning pain volume down. Pain feels less bad. When your mood is high, you're happy. Your emotions are positive. You, you're having experiences that are joyful. Your limbic system turns down pain volume, amazingly. And three is attention. So when you are distracted and you're focused on other things, I always ask my patients, tell me about a time you briefly forgot about your pain because you were so absorbed in some activity. And most of us have had that experience where you're just so absorbed in something, you just briefly forget about everything like a else. flow state, yeah. Right, and that's not magic, actually. This is your pain dial in action. So when you are really distracted away from your pain, your prefrontal cortex turns down your pain dial. So that's why distraction strategies work even with kids getting vaccines, which is such an important thing that's going to be happening very soon. You distract kids with screens. It's like the one time in my life that I'm like, use screens all screens. you want. Yeah. When when you're distracted, your your 
pain dial is turned down, so pain feels less bad. So back to your point, there are so many things we can do to turn down pain volume, but what happens in our culture is that we throw pills and procedures at yeah. pain, yeah. and we lose this whole other two-thirds of our biopsychosocial pain problem, and we're not paying attention to all these other things that we have agency over, that we have power over. Like, pain is in our body. We have control over our brains and bodies. We just sort of forget that. We have this external locus of control where all there is are pills and procedures, and that's what we do for pain. Nailed it. I mean, that. Thank you. That's it. That, that's the summary of your whole book. Oh, thank you. You know what? What it is is your book says, okay, here's the pain dial. Yeah. Here are the different levels. You know, like you said, prefrontal cortex attention, cortex thought, limbic emotion, all influence pain dial. So here are several different strategies, and you don't have to just pick one. Yep. You don't have to use this one if you don't like it, but you can mix and match to turn your pain dialed down yeah. and whether it's diaphragmatic breathing, which yeah. triggers a parasympathetic relaxation response, which lowers cortisol and stress, lowers the pain volume, or whether it's biofeedback, which was an amazing piece of the book where you're talking about making your hands heat up. It's a Wim Hof kind of like cold method kind of thing. And, yeah. and it works, it works. It's amazing. Whether it's EEG feedback using one of the devices where you're measuring brain waves and, and chilling them out, uh, it, there are so many non-pharmacologic options. And then you have the pharmacologic options too. Yes. Now, okay, now here's where we're gonna, we should dive into this a yes. little bit. And it'll, Ready. it will piss people off. I'm gonna drink water. But you know what? That's the whole idea of everything we do is to make people angry so that they think and they wake up a little bit. Yeah. Opioids. Yeah. Um, so in the US, we use what, 80% of the world's uh, Yes. Opioids. We yeah. don't have 80% of the world's pain. No. Um, we just respond to it in a reductionist one quadrant way, which is, well, everything's biomedical. Right. So here's the pill. Now, what is the downside of opioids for, we know that they can work for acute pain. Correct. What is the downside of opioids for chronic pain when it comes to this pain dial? Right. Um, so I think I mentioned I'm a nerd with a capital N and I believe in science. It's how I make sense of the world. Um, what we know about opioids from research, just research, is that actually what they do over time is sensitize the brain to pain. So over time, actually, opioids are turning up your pain dial and you need more to have the same effect. Everyone has experienced that. Anyone who's been on opioids knows you develop a tolerance. Yes. What that means is your brain is getting more sensitive to pain over time. So opioids are making you worse. I am not anti-opioid. Thank God for opioids. Yeah. Seriously. They're a like, lifesaver. Yeah. Totally. And there's a time and a place to use them. And because there is so little pain education in the United States, by the way, 96% of medical schools in the United States and Canada have zero dedicated compulsory pain education. 96% of medical schools. So because pain is so poorly taught and so poorly understood, we just throw pills at it. Because again, to your point before, this is not malicious. Like, of course, every we every, everyone who's a healthcare provider just wants to ease pain and suffering. That's what we all want to do that. And with a lack of education, you just do it the best way you know how. You've maybe heard that opioids can help pain, so you throw pills at it. We're doing that less now, of course, because the epidemic, but I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus here is what I'm trying to say. Like right. everyone has a good intent, except for big pharma. I'll throw them under the bus all day long. Absolutely, Purdue, uh, yeah. yeah. I can't even deal with yeah. that. Yeah, we'll talk yeah. about that. But, yeah. but just to say, opioids, we know for a fact, is this a fact? Yes. Uh, we know for a fact that opioids are not effective treatments for chronic pain. That, and, and that's not 
no one's debating it. It's not even a conversation. Like everyone knows that that's true. Mm -hmm. So do you want opioids for a, an, a surgery, post-surgical pain? Yeah, yes you do. And thank blessings. Um, but do you need them long-term? No, they're gonna make you worse. So I agree. Yeah. Um, when I've said this on the show, I get death threats from people with I know, pain. I'm worried about that too. Yeah, but and I'm not anti-opioid. I am all about wellness and health. Well, so, so yeah, yeah. So here, here's a question, I'm, and, and I think this is important because yeah. many in the chronic pain community are suffering very deeply. Yeah. The opioid is now part of their lives for better yeah, or for I worse. Their pain, their pain threshold is up. They have opioid hyperalgesia, whatever you wanna call it. Yeah. How, and now they're terrified because this pendulum sp swung the other I way. Know. And they're like, you're gonna take my one thing that keeps me alive away. And I the know. truth is, if you did take it away, they would go into horrible withdrawal. That's right. Their pain would go through the roof. That's right. How do you think about this? Yeah, what so. Do you, what do we do? I should be, right, I should be um, really careful to say just because we know that opioids are not an effective treatment for long-term pain does not mean that we should rip people off of their opioids if they have been on them long-term. Yep. In fact, because opioids sensitize the brain to pain, what's gonna happen if you rip people off their opioids is suffering and pain, both mm -hmm. of them, yeah. are gonna be through the roof. Mm -hmm. So what we actually need to do is provide alternative treatment and support to people who have already been prescribed opioids. And there are a lot of people who are doing work in this space. One of them is Beth Darnall, who's another pain psychologist. Mm. There's a lot of research being done on um, ethical tapering and mm. how to have conversations about ethical tapering if people even want to taper. Mm. And um, the conversation we need to have about whether or not it's even ethical to rip people off of their opioids if they've been on them for long periods of time, because is that their fault? And the answer is no. The They're is physicians, no. the people they were trusting. Who Put were acting with good intent. Like, like you said, I think when pharma told us back in the day, hey, you can help people without addiction, we wanted to believe them because we right. want to help people without That's addiction. Right. It's That's not right. like we're bad people. Well, some of us are. Some of us, I mean, the pill mill the dogs. Slytherins. Yeah, the Slytherins. No, just kidding. Ah, but you know what? <laughs> Snape was a Slytherin. Yeah, I know. But Bless his soul. Yeah, he was a complex guy, actually. In the end, he was a little bit creepy around uh, Harry's mom and, and really... I'm I'm very concerned about the whole situation there, but that's a whole nother conversation. So so the I think the key thing is let's try to avoid starting opioids for chronic Correct. pain. Correct. Let's try to be very mindful about when we start them for acute pain when we have modalities. Again, if it's if the mind body thing is so important, even telling patients, listen, this Tylenol plus and said mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. seems to help 95% yeah, of people right. feel so much better yeah. that they don't even need to escalate to something like an opioid that has these risks. Right. So let's start with this. Yeah. Um, and you know, as we approach an hour here, uh, I wanna be mindful of your time because I think you gotta dart across back to the bay and do what it is you do, which is help people who are suffering with pain, which mm -hmm. is kind of a cool, do you ever feel like I get to do this? Like how awesome that is? Totally, I actually feel like it's sort of selfish because I feel so good about it. I love it so much. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And as someone, I mean, I said this before, like, I really do feel like pain is a ubiquitous human experience. And I wish that I had known what I know about pain now, mm. you know, a million years ago, I think it would have changed my own journey. Luckily, I was never hooked on opioids, but mm. I have so much compassion for people who that's their only means of pain control. Cause it, it's just, it's just, it's just like such a deeply flawed space in medicine, like the way we treat pain and the way we treat pain patients and stigmatize them and 
Yeah, it's yeah. really awful. Yeah. We're going to look back and go barbaric. Oh, it, it totally is barbaric. You yeah. know, like you're, you're a nerd, right? Are you a Star Trek nerd? I'm not, I'm sorry. Okay, that's too bad. So because sorry. Bones went back to 1980s San Francisco and he's the doc and he saw that they were doing dialysis on a woman and he was like, dialysis, barbarians. Mm. Just take one of these and call me in the morning. And of course he's a reductionist, but uh, right. the, I think that's how we're gonna look back at pain and go, what well, we were barbaric. What were totally. we doing this amount of suffering? Th this is what I'd propose. Will you come back yeah. and dive in more about, okay, now I should mention this book, Bajam. The pain, let me get it in focus. The pain management workbook, and I'll put a link to your uh, Amazon. It's excellent. Will you come back and talk to me about fibromyalgia and talk to me about, you know, uh, these chronic pain syndromes, you know, CRPS? Will you talk to me about, because these are, they're the bane of physicians because we feel powerless. I know. And so do you promise you'll come back and talk about those things? Sure. Do you have stuff to say about them? I always have, can you tell that I always have stuff to say? <laughs> I have strong opinions and I state them strongly as a true New Yorker. <laughs> Me, oh, I, I thought there was something about you. I like the, 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 I'm gonna bite down on the doubloon and see if what we you say is true. Doubloons. Me pirate doubloon voice says, I, Rachel Zoffness, thank <laughs> you for coming on me show. This was so the, interesting and so fun. It was such a joy. And, yeah. uh, the last thing I want to say is I, I once had a uh, little routine I would do for the interns when I was an attending. I'm scared. It was uh, called a pirate MD. Oh dear. And the whole idea is if we just trained physicians like they train pirates, like we forced them to obey pirate rules. For example, <laughs> everyone had to have a little spirit animal on yeah. their shoulder. <laughs> and when you presented a patient, you had to do it in full pirate. So you'd be like, hi. Bed five, Mr. Williams Amazing. is a 33 year old landlubber That's status delightful. post keel hauling. And, and the dike, <laughs> oh, go ahead. If you F up, do you have to walk off the plank? Oh yeah, yeah. Dispo to the plank. <laughs> 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 and every diagnosis is scurvy. It's like number one, scurvy, nice. plan, the plank. Number two, also scurvy, plan, right. you, keel hauling. Right, yeah. do you prescribe rum? Is that like the number one? <laughs> Rum, TID, <laughs> PRN angst, right? Pirate angst. I love it. Rachel, what a joy. Thank you, thank you for thank sharing you your wisdom on. with us and uh, we'll have you back. Um, guys, if you like this sort of thing, please share the show with someone you know who's suffering from pain or yourself. Check out the book. Um, really, we need to change the paradigm about how we think about this stuff. And if you uh, wanna change the paradigm about how we do social media and kind of, improve our overall discourse with an alt middle critical way of thinking, then support our show on YouTube, Facebook, locals, wherever you like. Just go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, or you can support us one time at paypal.me forward slash zdogmd, and I will send you a personal thank you email and a pirate emoji, R. All right, I love you all. We out, thank you. Thank you. Professor. Thank you. R. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. 
And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.